Paul wrote this letter to his disciple Timothy to encourage him and to instruct him. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, she was seated alone in uh, a wooden frame. Some would call it a house. She lived in the slums of Iquitos, Peru. And she was a widow. 
She was a widow in the sense of a woman who's been rejected by a man. He had had his time with her and they had three children together. And when he abandoned her, she tried to feed the children the best she could. Eventually, her life led to a life of prostitution. But even, even that stopped producing money over the years. So she didn't know what to do. She took her children to the market in Iquitos. And as the children were distracted there in the market stalls, she turned and walked the other way. She walked away. She walked to the other side of town and abandoned her three children. They became, they became the children of the streets. And she became a lonely, broken woman. We found her in this little shell of a home right off the river there, one of the tributaries of the Amazon. And because Park City's Presbyterian Church had funded our trip, we had enough money to buy her five kilos of rice. So we carried the rice up into her house. Now when you're poor, you don't have any private property. And so we were able to walk right into her house. Paul Clark led me right in. There she sat, a young woman, and yet a woman ready to die. She was thrilled to receive the rice. She was thrilled to hear the gospel. And then we met up with the rest of our youth group here from church, and we hopped in that little boat and headed into the jungle, as I told you yesterday. We came back about 10 days later, and I said, Paul, do you think we could look in on this woman? She's right here by the waterside. He said, you know, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And so she went, we went in and we found her seated on the bag of rice. And she hadn't opened it. It had been 10 days. So we asked her, you know, we gave you this rice. It's from our church in Dallas and it's for you. <laughs> it's for you to eat. And she responded that she was going to eat it, but that she was going to wait until she was on the verge of death from starvation and then eat a little rice and then wait again until she was ready to die and then have some more rice because she thought this was the last rice she would ever receive for the rest of her life. So she sat on a full bag of rice, hadn't touched it in 10 days, even though she was skin and bones. Brothers and sisters, your lives make such a difference in the lives of other people. Your generosity touched that woman's life. In fact, your generosity was so great with, say, 10 or 11, 12 pounds of rice, whatever five kilos works out to be, she was overwhelmed. She was afraid to eat it. She was afraid to receive it. Such is the poverty of our world. The Apostle Paul wrote Timothy while at Ephesus because Ephesus was a town booming. The economy was hopping. 
And within Ephesus, a number of very wealthy people lived, and Paul wanted to instruct Timothy. Paul was discipling Timothy. That is the normal Christian life, to be discipled and to make disciples who make disciples. That's the pattern of our life. We live our life with that combination of Jesus's words where he says, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and go make disciples. So tonight, if you don't have a clue what to do with the rest of your life, you have it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now some people say, well, what does that mean, love your neighbor as yourself? I've actually struggled with that for decades. And it hit me about a month ago. Is that if we learn to live our, love ourselves, we will learn to live the most obstinate, rude, selfish, disobedient people on the face of the planet. So if we learn to apply the gospel of God's grace to our lives daily, we will have no problem applying the love and gospel of God's grace to the people of the world. We will learn what it is like to be a hopeless, broken sinner receiving the grace of God on a daily basis. Knowing myself to be the chief of sinners, it's actually quite easy to apply God's grace to other people. And so the Apostle Paul has trained Timothy in the gospel, and he's going to teach Timothy, and in particular, toward the end of these verses, I want you to notice in verse 17. It's labeled here in your bulletin. If you don't have it memorized, it says, as for the rich in this present age, as for the rich. So Paul's addressing Timothy. He wants him to know how do you deal with rich people? Now, what's interesting about rich people is many of us don't know we're rich. If you make $48,000 a year, you are in the top 1% in the world's population of wealth. I'll say it again because some of you are still trying to weigh cumulus clouds after yesterday. <laughs> hey, hey, I was right, right? $48,000 puts you in the top 1% of the world's population in terms of wealth. And so I want you to know that more than likely, everyone in this room is a wealthy person. I realized I was a wealthy person on my first trip to Africa, working in the slums of Nairobi. And I was trying to explain to them one of my first world problems as their children stood there with a distended stomach, naked, hadn't eaten for a few days. And I pretty much shut my mouth. I realized how privileged I was. I guess my problem was is I didn't, I didn't feel rich. And that's one of our problems in, in our world, and that's 
the first point I want to make tonight is rich people confuse being rich with feeling rich. Most people say, uh, well, even right now as I'm speaking, some of you have in your mind's eye uh, someone who's, well, you know, we're doing okay, honey, but they're really rich, right? We tend to think of rich people as somebody who make at least twice as much as we do. It's kind of a sliding scale. The problem is, is as a rich person, we don't feel that we're rich. And um, it's important for us to feel that we are wealthy, that we are blessed by God. Our great God who generously made everything, as we learned yesterday, our great creator, our great redeemer, our great provider. I remember at the age of nine, our local convenience store had a contest. And I entered the contest. And first prize was a go-kart. I was pretty jacked up about go-kart. Second prize was a year supply of ICs every day. And you know what? I won the ICs. I'd head over, it was called the U-Totem. I don't know if you ever heard of U-Totem. This is in Phoenix, Arizona. So uh, they gave me a little card, come walking up to the counter, boom, cherry. <laughs> and I, I just owned the world. I became quite a sensation in the neighborhood. <laughs> a lot of people I didn't know, all of a sudden it's like, hey, that's the icy man right there. <laughs> That's right, that's me. Do you want to see the card? <laughs> I, I felt rich. It was fantastic because I received a free IC every day. And I was rich compared to my friends. And that's what happens to us. We, we compare ourselves with our friends. We compare ourselves with other people. And we sometimes forget how wealthy we really are because we don't feel rich. I'll tell you the thing that makes you feel rich. This is a secret word. I want you to think about it when you think about money and when you think about time. It's the word margin. It's the word margin. If you have margin in your budget, you feel rich. If you have margin in your schedule, you feel free. You say, you know what? I'm just gonna go for a walk this morning. Just talk to the Lord. Just enjoy some time with him. You're rich in terms of time. Rich in terms of money because we've created margin. In order to create margin, you have to be disciplined enough to define the word enough. How much is enough? Because until you define the word enough, you think, I always could use a little more. But once you define the word enough, you begin to see how generous God has been. And you have a sense of surplus because you're able to say, God has provided for me. Therefore, 
I have enough. And everything left over is surplus. It's extra. And so one of the things we have to cultivate as a rich person is we need to feel rich. We need to know we're rich by defining how much is enough. I think it helped me to grow up as a poor person. But one of the things I noticed when uh, I went on to college was that I was easily satisfied. I felt very comfortable going uh, in the city of Wheaton and purchasing my clothes at the Salvation Army. I didn't have a coat. I went to, I grew up in Phoenix, right? You move from Phoenix to Chicago, you have to find something called a coat. (laughs) It was awesome. I went to the Goodwill, five bucks. I had a pretty cool parka. I don't know if it was the latest fashion. I I didn't really care, but I had enough. It satisfied me. It kept me warm. I felt rich. The second thing I want us to understand that Paul teaches us here in verse 17 is that rich people are plagued by discontentment because we become haughty. Look at the text. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. What is the word haughty? I mean, in your mind, you're thinking, I know haughty people. It's people who are entitled. How do you develop a sense of entitlement? Just imagine every Sunday morning, the ushers of Park City's Presbyterian Church met you at the various entrances of this church, and they handed you a crisp $100 bill. And they did that from the very first day you visited, and they did it every Sunday you attended. Just a crisp $100 bill. Let's say after about 25 years, you showed up, and they didn't hand you your $100 bill. And you would say, huh, what's going on here? Where's my $100 bill? And the usher said, no, wait a minute. What? Why do you think you deserve a $100 bill? We never told you we were going to give you $100. We just simply, by God's grace, wanted to bless you. Gave you $100 every time you came. Well, I've kind of grown to expect that. You have a sense of entitlement. That's why one of the very first things I did when y'all called me here to work with the youth is we established a world missions ministry. As Paul and Ashley shared last night, and Paul said, there we were (laughs) in the middle of Mexico mixing concrete. And he realized, wow, I'm rich. And it turned his life around for the Lord. And it strengthened him. And he realized that even those of us who know the Flowers family well, they did their very best to raise their children in a sense that, hey, you're not entitled, go cut the grass. And maybe one day we'll get a power mower. (laughs) Some of you can laugh harder at that than others. Listen to the proverb, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. 
and never satisfied are the eyes of man. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. I know walking through some of the poorest places in America and poorest places around the world, people aren't thinking, do all my accessories match? Are my brown shoes close enough to the shade of my brown belt that I might pull this off? They're happy to have clothes on their back. One of the biggest things that cuts into our wealth as rich people is a word. The word is upgrade. We upgrade things like from coach to economy plus to business class to first class. If you have ever been driving a perfectly good car and you drive it to the dealership in order to purchase a more expensive car, you are rich. If you woke up this morning and decided which shoes to wear, you're rich. If you had a choice between shirts, you're rich. If you decided what you wanted to eat today, you're rich. We are rich. We must recognize we're rich, but we should not become haughty and proud of ourselves for being rich. We should thank God. I know a family who lived on Signal Mountain in Tennessee. They moved into a beautiful home, 509 Rock House Court. If you're ever in Tennessee, come by. Love to see you. One at a time, but come by. You'll see a beautifully remodeled kitchen. The previous kitchen was fairly functional, and the dishwasher was a little spotty. So we thought, well, let's replace the dishwasher. I mean, we need a dishwasher. But then it turned out that the dishwasher we really wanted didn't quite fit under the cabinet, and it certainly didn't match our oven and refrigerator. Well, the next thing you know, we've got to replace all of our appliances. And because we had to kind of monkey around with that one cabinet, it turned out that we needed new cabinets throughout the entire kitchen. And they didn't sell those at Walmarts. So they had to be custom cabinets, which unfortunately didn't match our floor. <laughs> Lo and behold, we had the wrong paint on the walls. So I've come a long way from the kid who felt rich sucking down an icy every day. But you know what? It's a beautiful kitchen. We eat a lot of meals there. But what happens when we upgrade is we create a greater sense of financial pressure for ourselves. 
And by creating this sense of a, a greater sense of financial pressure, it has tremendous side effects in our lives. Uh, some of us have sacrificed our children for our jobs. Some of us have sacrificed our marriages for our jobs. Some of us cannot find contentment. The Apostle Paul is exhorting Timothy. He said, it is a wonderful thing to be content. So brothers and sisters, define the word enough for you and your household and be content with that. Be content in the Lord. Know that you're rich. Don't become entitled or haughty. The third side effect of being wealthy is we have a migration of hope. You see, hope requires an object. You're going to hope in something. You're going to hope in someone. It requires an object. When you place your hope in your wealth, you've migrated your faith from the Lord Jesus Christ to your wealth. Self-sufficiency is spiritual suicide. You've heard me say that. We stop relying on the Holy Spirit. We think that we can make do and we, we begin to manage our wealth. We begin to protect our wealth. We just sit on that bag of rice, afraid to eat it, afraid to enjoy the blessings of God, afraid to share God's generosity. We hoard our stuff to guard against the future rather than to trust in God the very God who has provided what we're hoarding. I'll never forget as a little boy, my mother would give me money so I could buy her a birthday present. I'd say, Mom, I'd like coloring, but I'm tired of coloring your birthday present every year. And my mother, rather than saying, well, cut the grass or run the vacuum or do the dishes. She said, well, here, Timmy, here's $5. Go, go purchase me a birthday present. God has given us, he's entrusted to us everything that we have. And he's entrusted this to us. And I want to tell you, I think the largest mistake I've made as a wealthy person is I assumed the surplus was also intended for me. I assumed that once I defined the word enough, that all the surplus was also mine to enjoy for myself. And I realized that I made a grave mistake, that God had entrusted to me resources to use for his kingdom. That he had entrusted me this, with these resources to build his kingdom, to invest in his kingdom, to feed the poor, to educate the ignorant. And so I've had to repent of that over the years. I've had to not only repent in the sense of telling God I was sorry, but I wanted to repent in the sense of living a new life. Imagine if 
One of you gave me $50 and said, why don't you just run across the street to Asian Mint and get us some food for dinner? And I came back with my favorite bottle of scotch. You'd say, you know, I gave you the money and you were supposed to go get food from Asian Mint. You've misallocated the funding. How have we misallocated our funding that God has entrusted to us? Now, I said last night that I'm not here to beat the sheep, but I'm also here to tell the truth, hopefully in a loving voice as a repentant person. Proverbs 26, 12 says, there is more hope for a fool than for someone who is wise in their own eyes. I want to bring us to some words of great encouragement, words that will lift your spirit, words that will bring life to you, good words. I don't know how much you follow philosophy, but philosophy has struggled through the ages to define the word good. Even today, we struggle to define the word good. The word good might apply to beauty. Oh, that's beautiful. It's good. The word good in Genesis is translated suitable. Like think of a sensible pair of shoes. You can wear them and walk in them. They're suitable for your need. That's good. But there's also a sense of good in being appropriate, a sense of uh, we had a good meal. Now, having a good meal requires two things, good food and good company. Right? We've had good company and horrible food, and we've had the opposite. What we like is both. For years, I found myself trying to be generous and godly, and I really struggle with that. You know, Jesus said that it's impossible to serve God and money. What does he mean by that? I, I wanna use this as a way of explaining that. Imagine that over on this side of the platform, Jay Marty was playing some classic rock and roll Think of your favorite song, like Mustang Sally. <laughs> Let's say over here, they're playing a waltz. And the bands are playing simultaneously and you're trying to dance. And you can't quite dance. You can't, wait, <laughs> one, two, three, and then Mustang Sally hits your brain and you can't do it. That's what Jesus means when he says you can't serve both God and money. You just can't do it. It, it, it doesn't work. And so I've spent my adult life trying to serve God by being a, while being a wealthy person. Because somewhere in my brain I've said, Jesus, I think you missed that one because I think I can serve God in money. And some of you have believed the same thing. 
So what instructions does Paul have for us tonight? What does he say to us here in 1 Timothy? You are going to love this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So we set our hopes on God, who's creator, redeemer, provider. He's the one who's given us this. And then he goes on, he says, who richly provides us with everything to what? To enjoy. Do you know what the very first step in being a godly, wealthy person is? Enjoy what God has given you. Celebrate how good God has been to you. Enjoy what he's given you. Isn't that beautiful? That we're to enjoy what he's given us. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says that they, meaning the rich, are to do good. Uh, They're to be rich in good works. So brothers and sisters, because we are wealthy, we have more time. We should be more involved in doing good for our, our church and our community. We should be rich in good works. Now it's dangerous in a Presbyterian crowd to talk about good works. Let me just quote Dallas Willard and say this. Dallas said, God is against earning. He's not against effort. It's okay to work hard and do good works while serving God. Not to try to earn your salvation, but to serve him out of joy. To give your life for him. To spend your time and to spend your money. Be rich in good works and be generous with our money. Be generous. Be generous. Now, most of us who have achieved wealth at some level have a fairly rational mind. We understand many of us struggle with control and we want a, a, a nice return for our investment. Sometimes that keeps us back from being generous, holds us back. We're looking for the right deal to invest the right money for God's kingdom. And I, I applaud that, but could I say, be generous? Do you remember in John chapter 12 when Mary took that expensive jar of ointment and put it on Jesus's feet? Was she wasteful? When I bought my bride uh, roses for her birthday, they, they cut the stems. Those, those flowers are they're dying, they're dead. Did I waste that money by trying to lavish generous love on my wife? No, I didn't. Be generous, be generous. I want us to think about one last thought and then I'll tell us a story to close. I wanna encourage you to build your financial future. Build your financial future, but don't stop at death. I wanna encourage you to build your financial future in heaven. 
You see, I'm at the age right now where I'm doing some kind of math. I'm thinking, wow, I've lived a pretty hard life. Maybe I'll die at 80. Not sure. Whew, what if I died at, I don't die till I'm 85. What am I going to do then? What is going to happen if I die before my wife dies? I certainly want to take good care of my wife. So I've got this mathematical equation in my head, trying to figure out how much money do I have to accrue in order to die well and to take care of my wife before she dies. And y'all, I've put the wrong end date on my thinking. Listen to what Paul tells Tim in this. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you know what's truly life? Eternal, eternal life. You build up and store up treasures in heaven when you invest God's resources in his kingdom work. That's the focus of our life. Store up treasures in heaven where it doesn't rust, where the moths don't eat it away. Store up treasures in heaven. Be generous. I took two of my black inner city friends and three of the men from our church in Chattanooga to Jordan, the country of Jordan, kind of a neighbor there to Israel. And um, you may not be surprised to hear this, but we were stopped by the police and we were sequestered in a room. We were trying to go to Petra Petra is this incredible canyon-esque uh, city, historic. It, it predates Christ by thousands of years. It's actually along the path that Moses took as he led the children of Israel out of the wilderness and up to the promised land. He went through Jordan on the King's Highway. Well, Petra's right off the King's Highway. We were trying to get into Petra, and so we showed up and we we tried to get in the gate and the police surrounded us and they took us into a back room. It turned out our guide from Egypt hadn't quite represented our group accurately and they wanted money as payment for his mistake. And I said, you know what? We've come here from America. We've come here to enjoy Jordan and if you're gonna arrest us, arrest us. If not, we're going to go see Petra. I, I just said, had it. In Christian love, of course. <laughs> Manifestation of the Spirit, I'm sure. And they said, okay. So we walked out. And then I, I got furious because the line to get in Petra was with a bunch of Muslim students, probably 200 of them. And I'm furious. I'm like, I can't believe it. These chuckleheads have detained us and we're not even gonna get in here. And, and then the Holy Spirit kind of grabbed me by the back of the neck and said, son, I sent you here to witness for Jesus. Here are your people. I had to delay you long enough 
to put you in the midst of 200 Muslims. And I said, gotcha. (laughs) Went through, they started singing in Arabic. So I got in the middle of them as we're walking through the canyons of Petra. And I know a little Hebrew, so the Arabic kind of, I was picking up, so I started singing with them. They are laughing and kind of filming it with their iPhones. And um, then their handlers, who were not happy about this, kind of pulled them apart, all these high school kids. So we went our way and headed on down through the canyon. And Rosario and I, uh, we, we, we got tired. So we sat in, on the, in the mouth of a cave in the shade, and we saw about 100 of these Muslim kids walking through the canyon. The canyon was about from here to the back of the church. So I looked at Ro, and I said, hey, Ro, let's sing. He goes, let's sing Amazing Grace. So we just started singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And the kids heard us, and they sprinted to us and surrounded us. And we kept singing Amazing Grace. And they had their phones out filming us. They said, sing again, sing again. Sang it again. And then they looked at us and said, what is amazing grace? And as they filmed us, we told them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Same thing happened about a half hour later. We're walking out of Petra. There's the other group of students. I said, Ro, let's go. We walked in the middle of them, started singing Amazing Grace. Man, the iPhones were out. Uh, uh, uh. They posted it all over the Middle East. Seed that is still in the sack will rot. If you expect a crop, take the seed out of the sack and put it in the field. If you keep the seeds of the gospel in a sack in this church or in your home, it is irrational to think you're going to have a crop. Get off of your bag of seeds (laughs) and spread the seeds of the gospel generously to everyone who has a pulse and then expect a crop. Don't sit on the bag of the gospel and expect a crop. I want to encourage you. I want to bless you to be free in Christ to know you're rich because God has made you rich, to know that he's entrusted these provisions to you, these resources uh, to share. Uh, I haven't had a chance to share with Kurt Nelson the vision God's given me for part of my ministry with East West, but in prayer, he gave me five E's last week. Every person evangelized, every Christian established in their faith, Every minority student educated, every citizen of Chattanooga 
employable. Every citizen of Christ's kingdom edifying their community with the gospel through their life and generous living. May God in his kindness cause this to be true in each of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, you're so generous and you have entrusted so much to us. And Father, for those of us who need to repent, may we, Lord, uh, repentance is a breath away. May we simply admit, confess to you that we're wrong. And then, Lord, uh, not fret, not beat ourselves up, but apply the gospel to ourselves for we're to love ourselves in the gospel that we might love others. Father, thank you for these dear friends here at Park City Presbyterian Church. Thank you for the men I'll be able to spend time with in the morning, the richness of our relationships, the, the tears we've shed, the, the belly laughs we have shared. Oh, Holy Spirit, we raise our sail. Blow, blow, billow in the sails of our lives. Take us with the seed of the gospel that you have so generously entrusted to us. And may we see a crop to your glory. For we're part of your story, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, amen. Amen.